demand equality. We demand justice. The revolution will not be televised. Action speaks louder than words, and we got that action. Let's go. I want my freedom, my justice, my future filled with substance. Want my freedom, my justice, my future filled with substance. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the No Justice, No Peace podcast with Racial Justice Now director H.A. Jabbar. Today we're talking about all things education justice. We are here with some of the champions of justice, the leaders of a beautiful struggle out of Baltimore, Maryland. We got this young giant, this brother named Davon Love. Davon Love is a Baltimore-based political organizer and the director of public policy for leaders of a beautiful struggle, a grassroots think tank that advances public policy interests of black people. Brother Davon Love is featured in the new HBO documentary, Baltimore Rising. This film documents both his youth education work around public policy as well as his legislative work around police reform. Brother Davon Love has been sharpening his oratory style and political thinking for more than a decade. While at Forest Park High School, he discovered the world of policy debate. Love was so skilled at debate, it earned him a scholarship to college. He then gained national attention when he and his fellow debater, Devin Cooper, won the Cross-Examination Debate Association National Championship. This brother bringing home titles. The first time in history that an all-black team debate won the tournament. So here we are with this giant, brother Davon Love. We're going to be talking today about the behavioral threat assessments in Maryland. And because our brother Davon Love and the leaders of A Beautiful Struggle are doing some amazing political work and have such a deep political understanding of what's going on in Maryland, we wanted to call on the experts to weigh in in what I see as a new COINTEL program for the public school system. You don't want to miss this with brother Davon Love and this sharpening of his oratory style and skills of debate. Um, we're so proud and admiration of this young man for the work that they're doing, for the work that he's doing in Baltimore and across Maryland. They're leading many people in their constituency, taking them down to the state house in Maryland. This is not what I consider your average, ordinary individual or activist or organizer. These are the high level political thinkers that advise what's going on in the ground. So let's bring on this giant, this brother, Davon Love. Thanks for having me, brother. Really appreciate the invitation. Man, I'm excited. I've been watching you all do your work. You have a very different structure. You know, you have a very different way of approaching uh, activism organizing policy change uh you don't have a typical 5013c uh like most other organizations do their work you seem to be very connected on the ground you have a uh what some would say a african-centered way of approaching the problems that you work to solve tell us a little bit about the structure of lbs and how you do what you do so um so you're right we're not a, a traditional 501c3 we're not a nonprofit organization. We are an LLC. So that means we're a business. And the reason why that's important is because I think there are a lot of times when people think about activism, 
people automatically think, oh, I got to start a nonprofit. But there are limitations to what nonprofits can do. And there are two main elements relevant here as to why we're LLC. The first is that if you're a nonprofit organization, it limits the nature of how you can engage the political realm. And LBS is fundamentally a political organization. We seek to influence a political landscape here in Maryland and in Baltimore City. And so being a LLC just gives us that flexibility. We can directly call out elected officials. We can directly support elected officials in ways of nonprofits. Um, There's just some limitations there. And then the other and more important reason is we take a social entrepreneurship approach to sustaining the organization. You know, there are a lot of organizations that because they become grant dependent, it limits their ability to say and do the things necessary to really push an agenda that's explicitly for Black people. And so what I mean by that is when you think about white liberals and white progressives, oftentimes Black people are having to capitulate to the sensibilities of white liberals and white progressives. And one of the things that white liberals and progressives militate the most against Black people is around questions of autonomy and self-determination. And so we see our autonomy as one of the assets to our political advocacy, the fact that we can say what we want and the fact that we can be unapologetically Black, it helps us to sustain the base that we have. And so if we were grant dependent, it would undermine our ability to develop our base and would make it so that we would have to consider the thoughtful sensibilities of white folks in in ways that would get in the way of us pushing forward our political agenda. And so we just have a different revenue model where, you know, we try to use the intellectual capital that we have in addition to sustaining, so like the community, making monthly contributions to our organization. So we have a diverse revenue stream um, for the purpose of giving us the autonomy politically for us to be able to say and do what needs to be said. That's a beautiful approach. You know, um, I, I definitely uh, understand what they say, overstand, understand the limitations of that 5013C nature and how they try to box us in and uh, keep us limited. But you mentioned a little bit about your the base that you serve. Share with us uh, about that base. So um, our mission explicitly talks about advocating for the public policy interests of Black people in Baltimore. And that's important in terms of the work that we do. Because as an organization that engages the public policy arena, for us to have any leverage or influence, we have to be able to demonstrate that there are a base of people who kind of emphatically support the things that we do. And so we've cultivated a base that's very diverse, uh, you know, in terms of different kinds of Black people, you know, Black folks who are human social service providers, you know, Black people who, you know, work after school programs, you know, Black folks who are in the advocacy arena. Black people who are in the realm of education, you know, so we have, you know, people that's, you know, on the corner, you know, we have a very diverse base because many of us in the organization being from Baltimore, have grown up in Baltimore and done a lot of work in Baltimore, you know, so much stuff that I think sometimes we forget, like all the stuff that we've done in the community. You know, I used to work at a community center, you know, I was a high school teacher for a couple of years. I coached debate for 10 years. I did constituent services for a councilwoman. I'm in West Baltimore for two and a half years. You know, we got people in our organization that have done work in prisons, you know, numerous organizing efforts, volunteering. So all different kinds of stuff. And over time, you know, our consistency 
and presence and effectiveness in the community, you know, we have a really strong base of support among Black people in Baltimore. And so that really is what gives us our juice. When legislators hear LBS says something about what they did, they get phone calls from their constituents. You know, they get phone calls from people who have high credibility. You know, they get, you know, calls from those grandmothers. You know what I'm saying? Or they get that call from that really involved teacher, you know, or that principal. Or, you know, they get they get those phone calls. And that's just about the kind of mundane work of, like, building a base and just doing work in the community. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. Um, you know, working in the policy arena, racial justice now for the last seven years and uh, sitting down with public uh, elected officials. Oftentimes people see these elected officials as the ones with the power. They see those those that uh, stand in front of the microphones as the ones that have the influence and those uh, that are the decision makers. People uh, think that they are, but in actuality that we are their boss, you know, we are the voters, we are their constituents. So when that phone call is made, like you said, from that grandmother to your state representative, to your council person, to your school board official, you are reminding them that I'm the one in charge and I am instructing you on how I want you to do your business for me. It's a reminder, no, that you work for me. So that's a very important point. You know, I talking with, with LBS, you brothers are so brilliant and you like this uh this woman that I love, my wife, you know, that you, you use these these large words and sometimes I have to really, you know, help us to back up and make sure that we don't talk over. I'm kinda I'm not the tallest brother in the world, but you know, again, talk over my head, you know. So break down this public policy interest, I believe was a term you used. Break that down so we can really understand what public policy interest is and how that affects that grandmother, that teacher, and those persons on the ground like ourselves. Yeah, so I think it's, um, when we talk about public policy, we're really talking about the rules that are made by government to shape the decisions that are made on behalf of the people that they serve. So whether you're talking about how many days a week that the city picks up the trash, whether you're talking about, you know, which neighborhoods get a new rec center built and who doesn't, whether you're talking about, you know, how much per people is allotted for a student in a particular school district, whether you're talking about if you can qualify for tax incentives or get a contract with the government to work on a project, the laws around how you get a liquor license. Like one of the things we do with in Baltimore is excessive amounts of businesses with liquor licenses, you know? And so there've been attempts at changing the policies around what it takes to get a liquor license to reduce the number, right? So public policy is really just about impacting the rules by which the institutions that are responsible for the general welfare of the community is affecting the rules by which those institutions operate in terms of our advocacy, public policy advocacy, it's about trying to impact and shape those rules in such a way that they benefit us more. Because that's what folks in positions of power do, is they try to influence public policy. They try to influence the rules to benefit their interests. And so for LBS, our job as an organization is to impact the rules of government in order to facilitate Black people's autonomy, self-determination, and general welfare. That's very significant, man. We don't, we're not educated 
in the arena of civics uh, in our education system. And so a lot of this is so foreign, you know, that oftentimes we don't understand uh, what our interests are. And we don't even understand the concept that we have specific interests in the government structure. We have specific interests in the school structure, in the education, in, um, like you said, uh, waste management, all of these. What are our specific interests? So that's a, a, a point that I want all of our listeners to digest that we have to represent our interests and think what is our interest because oftentimes our interests are not necessarily the same interests as those that live across town, those that live on the you know opposite side of the city or what have you. So we always have to be mindful whether we're working in education, whether we're working in government, whether we're working in uh, business or economics, that we always have to be working to understand and to implement our own interests. Yeah, so if I can add to that, you yeah. know, one of the things that makes me think about, you know, because oftentimes Black folks um, are encouraged to shy away from advocating, like you said, for our specific interests. So I mentioned earlier the piece around like liquor licenses in Baltimore. And actually, I think it's a good example. Black elected officials came forward with a plan to try to reduce the number of liquor licenses in Baltimore. And so what happened was that the Korean Merchants Association organized and pushed back. And they were able to significantly stop the change in the law that would have reduced significantly the number of liquor licenses um, in Baltimore. Now, that's not, you know, for the purpose of like disparaging people of Korean descent. It's to say that they organized for their interest. Right. And were unapologetic about because a lot of them, they own those stores. And that's how they send their kids to college. You know, that's how they make a livelihood. And so. A part of why they were successful is because Black folks, we shy away, you know, from saying, no, it is in our interest as Black people to shut down these liquor stores, you know? And so, to your point, like, as Black people, when we don't advocate for our interests, other people do, and it's usually at our expense. Yeah, that is a great example. We oftentimes don't understand, uh, in a sense, you know, it's war, it's warfare, you know, um, we love to to talk about the Ravens. You know, we love to talk about the Orioles, you know, our favorite basketball team. But, you know, there's a, a home team and an away team. You know what I mean? There's a, uh, a visiting team, <laughs> you know, and a home team. And we have to put our lives in perspective of we're representing the home team. What does the home team want to achieve? What is the goal or the basket or what is the touchdown? that we want to achieve for our community to make sure that the home team is taken care of. We're more concerned about the, the salary cap of the Lakers and, and things of that nature, but what's the salary cap going on at home? And so, no, that, those are um, extremely significant points in the, in the context of competition, in the context of business as warfare. And that is a, an association that you use specifically that's geared around dollars and cents. Economics, he said, nah, they're going to take away the money. We have to organize. Even though they might not all agree on everything, they agree that they need that money to come from those businesses so that they will work together for the benefit of their home team interests. So I'm just thankful to have uh, Davon Love on, Baltimore, Maryland, leaders of a beautiful struggle. 
I love to say it, Brother Davon, not leaders of an ugly struggle, not leaders of a difficult struggle, not leaders that are trying to struggle, but a beautiful struggle. Because the strength of our people, historically, that we've always fought back. We, we like to say that we were just enslaved and we just laid down and took our weapons. No. We have some current day examples of organizations that are fighting back like racial justice now, like leaders of a beautiful struggle, but doing that, what they call that Sankofa work. They are looking back. They say Sankofa means to go back and fetch it. So they're looking back at history and bringing history up to the present so that they can look at history and learn the lessons of our ancestors so that they can affect the present and the future, particularly seven generations ahead. So we're doing that work today. So I'm excited to dig deeper here with Brother Davon Love from Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Now, you mentioned earlier about being on a debate team, and that's very original, very unique. You know, um, I like a little bit of mathematics and we look at percentages, you know, to know that um, uh, the original people or uh, black people are a certain percentage of the community. And when we look at that debate team community, it can be, you know, a small percent. Uh, There was a great movie with Denzel Washington a few years back, uh, The Great Debaters, and it gave some insight into um, the nature of that community. So tell us about the debate team, how you got into that, about your coaching history, and how you continue to to move that forward. So debate um, is a very interesting activity. Just to give us some context, um, I did what's called policy debate. Policy debate is the most rigorous form of academic debate that exists. To give you just a sense of like just the kind of rigor we're talking about, the National Debate Tournament, which is kind of the highest governing body in college debate, has a formal relationship with CSIS, the Center for Strategic International Studies, led by Henry Kissinger. William Spanos, he wrote several books, but was quoted as saying that the neoconservatives that pushed forward George Bush's political agenda came out of the policy debate societies. Carl Rove himself also came out of policy debate. In fact, Donald Rumsfeld once said the most powerful person in the, in the country are the people that set the high school and college policy debate topics because they shape the conversation and discourse for some of the smartest young people in the country. And they say that a year's work on college debate is the equivalent of what a master's student does on their thesis. So that's just the level of you know rigor in policy debate. Now, Policy debate for many years has been a very elite white activity, meaning that those who were at the highest levels competitively were from white elite schools, you know, folks who parents can pay, you know, 15 grand, send their child to a seven week debate camp in Michigan. So that's the level of kind of, you know, elite white folks. And so I entered debate through a national movement, the Urban Debate League movement which started um, in the mid, in the 80s, picked up in the 90s, where you had essentially nonprofits and college debate teams wanting to provide the opportunity for Black folks, particularly from the inner city, to have access to the activity of policy debate. And so Baltimore, its UDL, its Urban Debate League, was founded in 1999. Now, so I came into debate around 2003, 2004. And I actually happened to come into debate at the same time as there was a intellectual and academic innovation in the activity of policy debate. In the early 2000s, 
at the University of Louisville out of the Pan-African Studies Department, Dr. Eddie Warner and Daryl Birch were basically wanting to change the nature of how debate operates because their belief was that the nature of the research and the pedagogy of traditional debate was steeped in racism and white supremacy. And so a part of what Dr. Warner did was he recruited a, um, a bunch of Black debaters who didn't debate in high school, but who they recruited them to debate in college, used what he called like the three-tier approach to validating truth claims. So he talked about, you know, in addition to academic authors, having what um, they call organic authors, um, organic intellectual draft, folks who aren't in the traditional academic space, but have theorized about the community, about society. And so they used hip hop artists as organic intellectuals and then fused that with our personal experience. That culminated in 2004 in the team of two black women, Liz Jones and Tanya Green, getting the quarterfinals of both national championship tournaments, you know, using this style of debate, critiquing the activity. And so, in fact, my college debate partner, who's also from Baltimore, he graduated a year before me. He actually went to the University of Louisville for two years. He actually transferred to Towson, came back to Baltimore to debate with me. And Birch actually moved from Louisville to Baltimore to train Devin and I. And so Devin and I essentially picked up where Louisville left off. And in 2008, Devin and I won a national championship. So we became the first team of Black debaters to win a national championship in the activity of policy debate, using arguments that were challenging the community for its uh, racist, pedagogical, and research practices. And now before Devin and I won nationals, there had only been one individual Black person that had won a national championship um, because policy debate is 2 on 2 Since Devin and I have won nationals, I believe there are 14 or 15 of us now, Black folks that have won national debate championships who have essentially extended upon the work that we did as debaters. And the reason why that's important is because, so what we decided to do is when we were done with debate, those of us at Towson, you know, Adam, um, Lawrence, you know, when we're done with debate at Towson, we made a decision to build an organization using the skills that we got from policy debate. Because what white folks do, you know, in the activity of debate is, they, you know, I mentioned the relationship with um, Henry Kissinger's think tank in D.C., right? So they go out and they join institutions that are advocating for the interest of white folks, right? What's that think tank called again? CSIS, the Center for Strategic International Studies, right. there is one of the most prominent international think tanks in D.C. You know, you're talking about people from Emory and Wake Forest and Harvard who go on to be a part of institutions and organizations that, you know, advance the public policy interest of white folks, right, and the folks that are tasked with advocating for. So we decided we're going to build an organization that's going to advocate, you know, for the policy interests of black people and do that here in Baltimore and in Maryland largely. And so that's really the relationship between debate and kind of how that informs the work we do. Now, that's a beautiful history. Let's jump into some, some policy. We are here in Maryland. Uh, Racial Justice Now has started a DMV chapter, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Racial Justice Now works to end institutional and systemic anti-Black racism, working specifically uh, in education. We have a, a national network. Um, we work with the Dignity in Schools campaign, which is a coalition 
uh, over 100 organizations across the nation and over 30 states uh, that works to end the school to prison pipeline. We're also members of the Journey for Justice Alliance that has over uh, 30 members across the country and are also working for equity in the public school education space. Where we come across uh, Brother Davon, and this goes back to that point of that think tank, is that policies are happening and it's, and it's kind of like a, a out of a box. And I, when I say out of a box, I mean that it's done in one state and they use that as a template of how to bring it to the next and then the next and then the next and then the next. So we saw this happen with school closures. They want to close inner city schools. And we saw it happen uh, in Oakland. And then they released a press release and it's got specific language. And then they, they pushed the, you know, the school board members to do certain things with specific language. Then we see it in Chicago. Then we see it in Newark. And then we see it, you know, happening in Delaware. And it's, it's the same language, the same policy, the same practices, and they're duplicating their efforts out of a box. And so now we're, we're run across this situation. White children have this tendency, not white children, but white adults and white children have a tendency to uh, be very violent. That's uh, very much in their history, uh, as we know. And their violence has elevated to the point now that they're going in and shooting up schools. They get mad at the teacher and they want to all of a sudden kill everybody. And so we see this opportunistic situation where policymakers come in and they say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna double the budget for safety and security. We're gonna fatten the pockets of our friends that have uh, scanners. We're gonna fatten the pockets of our friends that have uh, wands and batons. We're gonna uh, make a stimulus package for poor white people and give them jobs. But what's happening is all of these things happened in white communities, but now they're over-policing us in our communities where that's not even how we get down. That's not in our history. That's not in our track record, you know? And so this behavioral threat assessment has become a law in the state of Maryland. Now, any place I go wrong, you know, feel free to jump in and correct me. But uh, the behavioral threat assessment is uh, it's all over the country now. And they're putting these teams together uh, with an SRO. SRO stands for a security resource officer which are uh, special police. They're trained by the police department. Often they're able to carry guns in certain situations. They carry uh, either batons, maybe handcuffs, uh, maybe mace, and ju different jurisdictions uh, have different ways that they go about with the weaponry that they have. But these are essentially police in schools. And so this behavioral threat assessment is combining an SRO and a teacher to go around and look at students and label those that they see as a threat, not a human being, not a uh, immature child, not a child that has some trauma and needs some extra assistance. They wanna label these children as a quote, threat. And we see this extremely problematic because that's being combined with predictive data analytics. So just like when uh, my wife loves to shop, just like when she gets on there and buys a new pair of shoes for our daughter, they'll have a, you know, an ad that pops up that shows another pair of shoes. They already know your behavior and what you are accustomed to doing. And so they, uh, based on, they are predicting what you will continue to do. And so these predictive analytics are not exactly the same, but they are working in a fashion that might not be just 
to our community. And so we're seeing this extremely problematic. We want to know who is this information? You want to deem my child a threat and who are you going to share this information with? Does this information go to the sheriff? Does this information go to the police department? Will I be driving in my car and get pulled over by the sheriff or the police and say, we know that you have a child that's deemed as a threat? Would my child no longer now be able to go into a gifted and talented program because he's deemed a threat? Would he no longer be able to go to a, a so-called, uh, you know, highly significant high school or middle school because they're deemed a lot of questions that are really being unanswered. And so if you could um, jump in anywhere in there and give us some insight, particularly in the history of Maryland, you have a lot of history in dealing with uh, predictive analytics and other arenas. Fill us in because we're, we're, we're struggling here. You know, you raised a lot of, you know, really important points. And so I'll, I'll really highlight two. One is, is that what has emerged in many of the human services field is a desire to use, quote-unquote, evidence-based practices as it relates to dealing with young people and improving the quality of service. And the problem with that, and not to say that evidence isn't important, right, or data is not important, but the problem is that the framework by which the institutions that are tasked with providing human service are doing so from a perspective that is rooted in white supremacy. And what I mean by that is, is because it's important, I think, and I'm sure many of your listeners already understand, the concept that white supremacy is the default in our society. We are socialized to internalize notions of white supremacy and notions of black inferiority. And when we think about many of the images and representations we see of black people, particularly black youth, we talk about notions of black youth being inherently criminal right, inherently prone to violence. Those are part of the collective American consciousness. And so a human service provider that does not address that dynamic of how folks are socialized, those who are running the analytics, those who are producing this kind of predictive data, they're going to produce outcomes that feed the biases that they have internalized that, again, are a part of the collective American consciousness. So we should not trust any human service provider or institution or practice that deals particularly with Black and Brown youth that does not address the fact that notions of this idea of inherent criminality among Black people and Black youth has to be intentionally disrupted or it'll perpetuate, as you you said, the stigmatization of Black youth, tagging them with notions of being violent, and then that becomes how institutions deal with them. Like there are a bunch of studies that have come out over the past few years that say that law enforcement typically engages Black youth as if they're five years older than their actual age, right? And so what that suggests is that you know, police officers will, when they're interacting with the 14-year-old, right, they interact with them from the perspective that that 14-year-old is developmentally further along and as if they have a level of responsibility of an adult, right? So it's like because of these notions of Black inferiority and inherent criminality, Black youth aren't able to experience the innocence that it should be a natural part of a child's experience. And matter of fact, I've actually finishing up a piece that LBS is going to publish soon 
it's called when Baltimore awakes, like a 26,000 word critique of the human social service sector in Baltimore. And one of the books that I actually heavily quote is from uh, Teresa Perry. She wrote a book called Young, Gifted, and Black. And one of the things she talks about is that in the post-civil rights era, that educators actually do a worse job than pre-civil rights in equipping young Black people with the tools to combat the notions of Black inferiority that exist out in the world. She says pre-civil rights, because you had segregated schools and Black teachers that were in the community, there was an inherent interest and practice around arming students with, with the tools so that when they go out to the world, they can combat those notions of Black inferiority and then not impact them, right? And so I use that example to, to say that what you're describing is a part of the post-civil rights era of white folks being able to control the institutions that socialize Black youth. And that leads me to my second point, which is that the kind of predictive analytics, it shows where the mind is of those who are tasked with operating the institutions that socialize our youth, that our youth should not be interacted with as thought experiments. People should interact with our youth as human beings. And what has happened is that notions of Black inferiority, notions of anti-Blackness, have been so seared into the consciousness of those that are in charge of these institutions. It's almost like they lack the capacity to see the level of inhumanity in their practice of doing things like these predictive analytics. It's almost like they don't have the capacity to see how inhumane it is because the actual belief, however sublimated in their consciousness or subconscious, the fundamental belief of a lot of people that operate in the sector is that these Black youth are uncivilized, are animals, are not human, and therefore don't deserve the level of care that they deserve. And I think we see the kind of policies you describe, I think, are a manifestation of that lack of regard for the humanity of our children. So what are the, the solutions? You know, I went down to the school board and uh, we, you know, first had a meeting with the uh, president of the school board, as well as another school board member to express our concerns, to introduce ourselves, to, you know, begin to develop a relationship, let them know who our children are, what school they go to, and that type of thing. And then we followed up by going to be on the record. We attended a school board meeting. We, you know, did what we had to do as far as filling out the proper paperwork to speak on the record and, you know, testify and give our concerns. And of course, you know, they say, thank you very much, <laughs> you know. So what do we do to rectify these situations? We're not uh, the type to, to lay down and let them just run over us. What can we do to, um, to see change? Um, so there are a few things that I would suggest. So the first thing is getting, I don't know in the moment, but getting a sense of where the jurisdiction lies in terms of instituting these kind of policies. So is it is it a federal policy that's that's a mandate from the federal government? Is it state policy that is mandated through state government or is it local? Once we determine where the jurisdiction is, then we strategically plot out a strategy for rallying elected officials to champion a piece of legislation that would essentially get rid of those kinds of practices, right? So let's say we figured out that this is a policy that is a district-level policy, 
right? So that different school districts can opt into the kind of predictive policing, behavioral threat assessment policies that you described, just for the sake of argument. Let's say that that's where the jurisdiction lies. Then a part of what we do is we go to our, you know, our city council or our mayor. And, and one of the things that's interesting about Baltimore is that even though our mayor now has gotten control over the school board, and that's a part of the group that we will lobby, we actually, our um, local district level policies will require state level action. So then we would go to our Baltimore city, you know, in Baltimore, we go to our Baltimore city delegation, right? So you're in Silver Spring, you go to the Montgomery County delegation, you would say, hey, we noticed that this is happening. We talked to our school board. We told them about our concerns. We want a policy that basically says that those kinds of practices are not allowed in the school district. And we would do the work of uh, putting pressure on that delegation to go into the General Assembly and say that those practices you know, are not allowed you know, in the school district. And so a part of what you all did in terms of talking to the school board president is important because it's your due diligence. Because what the delegation is going to ask you is, well, have you talked to the school district? You know, what have they said? You know, what's their position on it? Right. And once you've stated clearly that you've made your concerns known, that you talked on the record, that you put forward the issues, if the school district maintains their position in using that process, then you're able to say to the delegation, we just disagree with the school district. Here's the data. Here are a bunch of other advocates in the community that, you know, take our perspective. And you push forward during the General Assembly. And that's where like organizations like LBS in terms of working the General Assembly, that's something that we could pick up. And that becomes a part of our legislative advocacy. You know, so yeah, so that's that's really, you know, what we do. You know, and I mean, even as we're talking now, you know, in the course of just doing a little bit more research, we find out that that's the path forward, then you know, LBS is on it. And so, you know, we can talk about what the bill says, get a sponsor, and get to working. And so we are, uh, you know, gathering as much information as we can, as you said, doing our due diligence, meeting with uh, brothers and sisters throughout the, the county, throughout the state, pushing forward um, new ideas and new thoughts about what could be done. You know, this is a, a new dynamic. So we uh, they're asking for some time, of course. Um, it just came down from Governor Hogan. But what we noticed, again, back to the money, is that they uh, quadrupled. Uh, it's, I don't think it was specifically the safety and security budget, but there was a, a budget that's allocated for SROs, metal detectors, and things like that. And that budget was quadrupled. So somebody's interests <laughs> have been quadrupled. Somebody's profit margin in manufacturing, in delivery, in transportation, all of those things we see as a, uh, a surplus or a boost into their economic status. And so, you know, dealing with uh, Caucasians, quite honestly, you know, they say always follow the money, right? And so we're following this money and it's very dangerous. And, and back to that Sankofa moment, we are looking back into history as to where did the police come from? We're looking back into history is like, how are police in schools? Where's the logic in that? But when we go back in history, we find that the origin of police are from what we call slave catchers. So these slave catchers are not slave owners. 
right? These are the poor whites who couldn't necessarily compete with this family that has free labor, right? And so instead of uh, the, the slave owners or enslaved owners allowing the poor whites to get upset and revolt, they throw a few crumbs from their table and allow them to become our oppressors by doing criminal acts on us, by hurting us in different forms and fashions, one of them now being in our school system. So here are poor whites, and some even, uh, you might say, poor blacks as well, getting a $15 job an hour, and they're very happy that they have this you know, economic boost to bring home some money to their families, but at the cost of the masses of our children. So as we fight against the school to prison pipeline, we see this is a very critical moment in time that we can't fall asleep on our watch. We can't fall asleep as they put this system in place to help young people find their way to the juvenile prison, to the adult prison, ultimately to stay in their state prisons and federal prisons. And so this is a very direct setup. So as, as we wind down, tell everybody how they can uh, contact uh, and catch up and learn more about LBS. And I also want you to share a little bit about, you mentioned authors, and I know that you're an author also, and we love to hear about your uh, writings. Um, so you can catch us, our website is lbsbaltimore.com. It's a lot of written material on there. And um, we also just launched a platform, New Timbuk2. Um, which has more of kind of the written intellectual content about our political commentary. We have a podcast that uh, the brother Lawrence Grand Prix, our director of research in search of black power. Um, he's responsible for putting that together. And so, you know, lots of uh, good information there. We're on all your social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LBS Baltimore. And in terms of being an author, um, Lawrence and I co-authored a book that came out in 2015 called The Black Book Reflections from the Baltimore Grassroots just a collection of essays that really talked about our experiences in doing grassroots activism in Baltimore. And then I put out a book, Worse Than Trump, The American Plantation, and that came out in 2018. And that book is really just like political commentary, basically just talking about the ways in which progressives exploit Black people's political power and what it looks like to manifest Black political power in such a way that's independent that can leverage our power to um, advance our interests. And so so, you know, there's that book. And then I just mentioned that we're going to release what we're calling a black paper that is called When Baltimore Awakes, a critique of the Baltimore human social service sector. When Baltimore Awakes is a nod to Hubert Henry Harrison's When Africa Awakes that was published in 1920. Hubert Henry Harrison left the Socialist Party because of their racism, because of their white supremacy. And a lot of what he writes about in when Africa Awakes is a collection of writings critiquing the nature of how Black folks were being exploited by white liberals and progressives. So Baltimore Awakes is kind of a nod to that. And so that'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, watch out for that. You know, like I said, we talk directly about Baltimore and we talk about, you know, John Sackler School of Education. We critique John Sackler School of Public Health, Curran Commission, Bob Embry and the Able Foundation. So we really go after examples of what the mainstream human social service sector is like in that piece. And that'll be coming out soon. So you got it there from the horse's mouth, as they say. Our brother Davon Love giving us the truth and the whole truth, nothing but the truth 
on the behavioral threat assessments going on here in the state of Maryland. So let's look at our website or the website of uh, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. If you feel it in your heart and mind to give a donation to help support this work, you can do so at their website. We want to thank our sponsor, Racial Justice Now, rjndmv.org, also at rjnohio.org. You can make a donation to support this podcast to support the work of ending the school to prison pipeline and to help us continue 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 the work of organizing advocacy policy change and leadership development thank you for listening this has been the no justice peace podcast with racial justice now director h.a jabbar and racial justice now is signing off peace and blessings i'm a yelling with my fist up in the air I love my dark skin and my nappy hair. Bump you. Crooked politicians see him everywhere. Bump you. Bump 45, we know that he don't care. Bump you. To the system, cause y'all never treat us equal. Bump you. Dirty cops, why y'all killing all my people? Bump you. Hold the lies in the history they teach you. Bump you. A black mind is a weapon and it's lethal. Bump you. If you don't like it, cause this is a revolution. Bump you. I can take a knee, it's in the Constitution. Mount Rushmore was spoken by the Klan. With my fist up, I'm screaming, bump the man. I want my freedom, my justice, my future built with substance. Want my freedom, my justice, my future built with substance. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too. I want my freedom, my justice, my future built with substance. Want my freedom, my justice, my future built with substance. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too.